0: Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe for jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him and he said Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thanks, Dana. Good morning. Happy
1: Palm Sunday. Glad you're with us today at the beginning of Holy Week. I'm going to reiterate some of the things that John said in his exhortation about Holy Week uh, for two reasons. One is because I know many of you, like me, your, your brains are still ramping up at that point, and hopefully they're fully engaged now. And secondly, because they're worthy of being said twice and three times and a thousand times. Holy Week, as you may know, marks the week between Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is called Palm Sunday, which is today. And his resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday next week. In the, in the middle again, as John mentioned, is what we call Maundy Thursday. It's the night in which Jesus gave us the Lord's supper. It's also the evening in which he was betrayed and arrested and tried. We call the Friday of that week, Good Friday. Uh, it's the day in which Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. To better understand and Lord willing, to better celebrate these things, we want to invite you back tonight. Come on out. You get the, the cuteness factor is at an all time high at six o'clock. And as the, the kids, the little kids t- tell us in song and in drama, the Easter story, the, the story of Holy Week and the resurrection. And I understand there are a few added elements this year, never before seen footage. So you're going to want to be. Here for that, mainly though, to hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. In addition, please come on back Thursday evening if you're new to grace or newer and you've never been to a Monday, Thursday service. And if you're not even sure what that means, this is your year. 6.30 on Thursday evening, come on out and we'll sing together and care, consider more carefully the events of of, and significance of the events of Holy Week. And above all, we'd love for you to come out next Sunday. Eat, Eat. breakfast with us, 845 to 10, come anywhere in that window, and then ultimately for the worship service at 1030. The thing for us to realize as Christians is that in one sense, all of life is a celebration of our risen Lord. Every minute of every day is a chance. In one sense, it's Required. It's it's required logically. If Jesus is who the word of God says he is and has done what the word of God says he has done, what would we do? <laughs> like Peter says at the end of our passage for this morning, where else do we go? What what else is there to do than praise our risen Lord? So in one sense, all of life is a celebration. It's We're called to glorify God and everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we praise our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's required logically, and it's required by the Lord's commands. But again, every minute of every day, we praise the one who defeated death and purchased our forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. In another sense, it is good and right to join with the saints of old and the saints around the world today in setting aside a particular time. So when we talk about Holy Week and the events that took place and what they mean, always we should be celebrating those things. But but also it's right and good to join the the church historical and the church global today and this week and next Sunday in celebrating uniquely the person and events that are at the heart of our faith. So with all of that said, this isn't exactly a Palm Sunday sermon. It is, but it isn't. And what I mean by it isn't is that you can tell that our passage doesn't deal directly with the events of Palm Sunday. Indirectly, however, they help us to prepare well. We need that. In particular, this passage helps us to make sense. Think about Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday and ending with Easter. Think about that. In particular, this passage helps us make sense how the crowds could be so enthusiastic about Jesus on Sunday and so demanding of his crucifixion just a few days later on Friday. And in that, it helps us to avoid their error and instead embrace Jesus for all that he is and all that he does and all that he commands and all that he offers. So what I'm trying to say and what I'd like you to see before I pray is that in a very real way, this passage in all of John 6 is a prequel to Holy Week. Well, what do I mean by that? At the beginning of John 6, like the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, the crowds adored Jesus for seemingly giving them what they wanted. Food at the beginning of John 6 and a conquering king on Palm Sunday. By the end of John 6, though, it had become clear that the food Jesus offered wasn't quite what the crowds expected, even as Good Friday made it clear that Jesus wasn't the, quite the kind of Messiah that they expected either. And for that reason, in our passage and in Holy Week, and for that reason, the crowds began to turn from Jesus. In other words, this is a passage, this is a Palm Sunday passage, and that it helps us make sense of how Palm Sunday became Good Friday. The main point of this sermon continues to be that Jesus will receive all who will come to him, granting them eternal life. Hear that grace. Don't get tired of hearing that. Jesus will receive all. Every man, woman, and child, regardless of your background or your your skin tone or where you've been or what you've done or what you've failed to do, Jesus will receive all who will come to him, granting eternal life. But this passage helps us to see some something else as well, namely that we must come to him on his terms, all of his terms and only his terms, and that the ability to do so, to gladly accept Jesus' terms as the words of life is a gift from God. This proved too much for many who had set their minds on a different kind of provider, savior, king, but to some it was the words of life. Let's pray that it would be so for us in increasing measure and an increasing number this morning. God, we thank you that you are the giver of all good things, including the faith that we need to believe in Jesus. That is a gift from you. We've seen it in John several times already, and we see it again this morning. You are the giver of every good gift, every good gift. Our ability to trust in you is among those. And so, God, I thank you for such a clear picture in this passage of what it looks like to be an unbelieving believer or a discipleless disciple not not because we we want that but because we want to know if we are that that we might turn to the real thing that you might through that realization grant us the gift of saving faith god open our eyes afresh this morning to those who do not see who do not understand that you are the christ the son of god worthy of all praise and honor and glory, but also all trust and obedience for those who have never truly seen, even if they believe they had. May they this morning realize that and, and see that and believe. And so grant that this morning. But to those of us who have sight, increase our sight, increase our clarity, increase our trust, increase our hope as we look at your word and the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to make sense of our passage, we're going to back up. I, I I want you to get all that there is out of this. I want to get all that there is out of this. And to do that, we need to we need to be familiar with all of John's gospel up to this point. In other words, everything we've covered so far, and and especially the beginning of John six. And and so if you're at all like me, or if if you're new, maybe maybe you're newer to grace and you weren't here through all of John, or maybe you're like me and that you just forget easily and quickly, but I want to bring you up to speed. I'm going to give you a a quick preview of one through five, and then a quick recap of the beginning of John six. So in the first five chapters of John, the primary content of his gospel. So if you take John's gospel and and, and you can get those, I have some in my office. It's just the gospel of John. It's a neat thing to give out to people. It's a neat thing to read yourself. But if if you just take John's gospel, Primarily what it is, is a, it's a, it's a collection of a bunch of stories about Jesus' life, what he said and did. And it's a collection of particular stories that most clearly show him to be who he is, the long promised Messiah or Christ. In other words, not everything that Jesus said or did, John tells us is in John's gospel. Jesus, or John picked certain things to put in there, certain, certain stories. And they are the ones under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John understood to be the ones that point most to the Christness of Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he pick those? He tells us that the primary purpose behind that was to help his readers, including you and me, to trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, so that we might have everlasting life in him. That's the whole point of all of it. Including the first five chapters. And so to properly orient us in that, the first 18 verses, if you have your Bibles and you look at them, the first 18 verses are unique from the rest of John. John penned them as a sort of theological treatise. So it's, it's sort of this high up 10,000 foot flyover of the person and ministry of Jesus. He, he orients us theologically before he Orients us historically. In it, it is in the first 18 verses, he declared Jesus to be the word of God, the means by which God created all things and the life and light that overcomes death and darkness. That's a, that's a pretty good intro there. You know, if you ever go to a conference or whatever, they usually introduce the speaker first and tell you some high level things about the speaker. Well, none is, none can beat that. The word of God, the means by which God created all things, the light and life that overcomes death and darkness. John went on to explain that even though Jesus had eternally existed as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he had actually come. So this is John reflecting back, setting the stage for the stories he's going to tell. He had actually, this one who He'd actually come to earth and taken on flesh that he might dwell among us as an example to us and then die and rise for us. So from 10,000 feet down to the ground, John began to recount the main events of Jesus' life and ministry. And he started with the fact that God sent someone, a man named John the Baptist, to announce the coming of the Messiah and prepare the way for him. John wrote several paragraphs. John, the gospel writer, wrote several paragraphs in the middle of chapter one on the ministry of John the Baptist. We're told that he had spent his time fearlessly calling God's people to repentance, baptizing those who did, and announcing that the Messiah's coming is imminent. The Jewish leaders caught word of this. That's a big deal, as you can imagine. And those given to look for and teach on and prepare people for this, this strange dude who lived in the wilderness and wore camel's hair and ate locusts and, and honey was overshadowing them. And so they'd taken notice. They'd sent men to investigate and they were growing in skepticism. And then in spectacularly humble fashion, It's meant to be a contradiction. Spectacularly humble fashion, Jesus appeared on the scene. John says it in a way that is just so, in my mind, well, obviously perfect because God inspired it, but just so right for everything else. It just says Jesus is walking by. It it sounds as if he's not even going to stop and say anything. And John points... And declares him to be the one he'd promised. This is him. This is the one I told you about. He's here. There he is. This is the one sent by God that that I was sent by God to prepare the way for. He is the lamb of God. I baptize with water. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Well, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus traveled throughout the entire nation of Israel His ministry consisted of three main elements. We've seen all three already in the first five chapters, and we'll see more of this throughout the rest of the gospel. But first, he called a specific group of 12 to follow him and revealed certain things only to them. That's one part of his ministry. Second, he taught ever-growing crowds about the kingdom of God, calling them to follow him as well, offering himself to all. And the third aspect of his ministry that, again, we've seen is that he performed many signs and wonders to bless people and validate his claims. In the first five chapters alone, we've witnessed Jesus turn water into wine, clear the temple of sinful money changers and exploitive businessmen, reveal to people the secrets of their hearts and minds, and heal the sick and the dying. He also taught of the need to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, And declared to the world that it was the love of God that sent him there to save the world. Early in his ministry, that is early in Jesus' ministry, John recounts that Jesus even went to Samaria. This is a big deal. The land of Jews who'd intermarried with pagan people and their gods, their pagan gods, and who hated and were hated by the rest of the Jewish people because of that. Jesus even went there. And he went there to proclaim the good news the coming kingdom of God to all, to all who would receive it in faith. And all of this happened again as he traveled north and south and south and north and north and south and south and north over and over again throughout the kingdom of Israel. During this time, some, this is important, some truly believed and followed him. Some received his message in faith and received him and his claims and entrusted in him and followed him. Some believed that they believed, but showed themselves eventually, to be unbelieving believers. Some were initially curious, even following him for a time, but were ultimately unconvinced or unwilling to accept all of Jesus' terms. And some, we've seen, especially among the religious leaders, were outright hostile, devising ways to silence Jesus, believing him to be a blasphemer. In simplest terms, again, if you're just joining us or to jog your memory, if you've been here, in simplest terms, John 1 through 5 is the story of the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth, one in which he made spectacular claims about being the Christ promised by God, performed spectacular signs to back that claim up, and was met by a myriad range of responses from wholehearted devotion to murderous hatred. That's where we've been. Okay, to get our passage, to make sense of it, and the tension in it, and those who are there, and why they're there, and why they respond the way that they do, the two groups. To make sense of that, we really need to remember all of that, along with the dramatic extension of it in the first 60 verses of John 6. So let me give you a quick recap of those, or that as well. In those verses, in the beginning of John chapter 6, John explained to his readers that a large crowd heard that Jesus had come to their town and they gathered. They'd heard a bunch from him already because he'd already been to that area. They'd heard a bunch more about him as he traveled and ministered in other areas. And they'd seen quite a bit as well. This was the region in which Jesus did his first miracle, turning water into wine. And so hearing that he was back in their town, they started coming together for more. And Jesus didn't disappoint. It's the beginning of John 6. You remember this. He received them with, he, re, he received them. He allowed them to come to him and added spectacularly to the growing list of signs and wonders he performed in the power of God. Somewhere around 20,000 men, women and children showed up. He taught them. He, he instructed them and then miraculously fed them all abundantly from a few pieces of fish and bread. Rightly amazed, that's amazing, the crowd sought to make Jesus for, Jesus king by force. Before they could, however, he did two things. You remember what those two things were? One, he sent his disciples off in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee and to go back where they had come from. And two, he slipped off by himself to pray. While the amazement of the miraculous feeding was certainly still at a fever pitch in the disciples, you you got to, it is just a few hours before, just picture them in the boat rowing across. They had to have been, what in the world? Did you see that? My My basket never emptied. And then we got all the, they had it with them, presumably. Remember they collected 12 baskets and maybe they had it in the boat with them or something. They're still freshly amazed by this. Well, while that was the case, Jesus poured gas on the fire by walking halfway across the Sea of Galilee on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm to get to them. And with the amazement of the miraculous feeding still at a fever pitch in them, that is in the crowds, the next morning they noticed that Jesus and his disciples were gone. And so they set out to find him. They were still inevitably awed and amazed and once they did, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they questioned Jesus further. Hey, we've got more. That was awesome. We've got more. We we want more from you still. And here's where we really need to lean into our passage. Still, still bringing you up to speed. We're not yet to this passage, but here's where you really need to lean in from earlier in John 6. So they came to him. and They asked him more questions, and this is often the case when people encounter Jesus. The crowds who had come to Jesus for one thing got something else from him entirely. This was Pastor Mike's sermon from last week. Instead of being flattered by their attention and pandering to them because of it, because of it, Jesus began by rebuking them for coming to him for nothing more than to have him fulfill the desires of their flesh. Instead, he said they should have come to him to be truly and eternally satisfied. And that comes ultimately by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Listen to Pastor Mike's sermon from last week. If you want to know more about that, he did a great great job with it. But if that sounds kind of crazy to you, and it should, you should think, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus, that's weird. You should think, yeah, yeah, it, you should think that. If it sounds weird to you, it did to those to whom Jesus first spoke all those words as well. In fact, Jesus taught, get this, Grace, I'm almost, almost to the actual passage for this morning. Jesus taught that sin's corrupting effect, like John said in the exhortation, we're all born into sin, and part of being born into sin is being born into death and blindness. Jesus taught that part of sin's corrupting effect is that his words, Jesus' words, will always and only seem crazy to everyone apart from God drawing them to him in belief. And that's where we pick up this morning. The crowd that Jesus had miraculously fed, that had sought after him after he left, that had found him on the other side of the lake, and then eventually what they did, and we see this morning, is they rejected Jesus because his teachings, his claims, and his terms were too much for them. All right, look at verse 60. As we begin to make our way through this actual passage this morning, keep all of that in mind as the backdrop. You you need that to make sense of this. Again, having just been told by Jesus that rather than offering them unlimited fish and bread, he offered them his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. Having just been told by Jesus that he was greater than Moses, whom they esteemed higher than any other man. Having just been told by Jesus that he had come down from heaven and having been just been told by Jesus that he alone offers eternal life and resurrection. The crowds were understandably a bit dazed and confused. And so verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, therefore, they said, this, this is, this is hard stuff. This is a hard saying who, who can listen to this? Truly. I think our, our tendency is to, at least my tendency is to sort of scoff at them. How can you be so thick-headed? How he's standing in front of you. How can you be so ridiculous? But that is a lot to get your head and your heart around. It's it's what they'd been waiting for, Grace, for for centuries. This is what God's people had been waiting for. But now that it was right in front of them, in an entirely unexpected form, and with an entirely unexpected message. They doubted and complained rather than trusted and rejoiced. Verse 61 makes that plain. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? These things that I say, these things you claim to be longing for now that I am here and they are here, do you take offense? Clearly, the response of the crowds was not one that honored Jesus or his father. They shouldn't have taken offense, but they did. They shouldn't have doubted, but they did. They shouldn't have complained, but they did. The passage tells us that these were people who had chosen in some sense to follow Jesus. And so this mass crowd narrowed down to some at some point that were that, that considered themselves actual followers of Jesus. They're referred to as his disciples, but also they were now beginning to have second thoughts. Jesus' next reply only further upped the stakes. Instead of, "Oh no no no, you didn't understand. I I didn't mean what you think I meant by that," I, there's a much easier version. There's a there's an easier path that you can take. I mean, that's for the super people. But I got you know, I've got the light. Jesus' light version for you. Instead of that, he he doubled down. He he his next words were basically this: If you if you think that's a big deal, wait until you hear what I'm about to say. If you have a problem believing what you've already heard. you're in trouble. You're never going to believe what I'm about to tell you. Do you take offense at this, the things you've already heard Jesus said at the end of 61? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What did Jesus mean by that question, and why would that be even harder for them to believe? It means that the crowds were having a hard time hearing and believing that Jesus came down from heaven, that if they were having a hard time with that, If they were having a hard time believing that he'd offer himself as food and drink, that he was greater than Moses and that he is the only means by which men can be saved, then the idea of him him accomplishing all of that by being raised up on a cross, then rising from the dead, and then rising up to the Father's side again would have been a thousand times more scandalous and preposterous. It's one thing that you're going to deliver us. It's another thing that you're going to deliver us by death. Death on the cross was for the lowest of the low, not the promised Messiah they believed. The Messiah would save by conquering and destroying, not by being conquered and destroyed, right? The very idea, if the if the very idea of Jesus being from God was too much, they'd never accept that he'd soon return to God after being handed over to the most humiliating death imaginable. Grace, the only reasonable response, if, if we really understand what's going on here is to wonder who, who then can be saved? This is hard. This is, this is, who can be saved? Who can believe such things? How, how do we come to the place where this not only makes sense, but is so obviously true to us that we'd bank our entire and eternal lives on it. How how do you get over the fact that eating flesh and drinking blood, that you're saved by crucifixion, how do you get over the fact that that's crazy stuff? Jesus' next words confirm that's the right question. If it sounds weird that I'm asking that, it shouldn't, because Jesus' next words are the answer to that, which means it is the right question. And in 63, he says, yeah, I get it. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. You're trying to reason on your own, your own use your own mind and your own thought process, your own reasoning abilities. Remember what they asked him earlier? What, what must we do? What commands do we need to obey to, to get the things you're offering? That's why we got to get all of chapter six together and all of John together to this point. They're thinking in human terms. They're, they're thinking according to human logic. They're thinking in terms of what They have the ability to do. And Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. In other words, you can't, you can't. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing and we're all perishing. You can't do it on your own. In your flesh, you cannot overcome the blinding, deadly effects of sin. It is the Holy Spirit of God alone who gives life and sight. I absolutely love how simply one commentator says this. He says this, however much men and women are commanded to believe, meaning the Bible is filled with commands to believe, and however much... And however accountable we are for our unbelief, and the Bible says all all over the place that we are, He says this: genuine coming to faith is never finally a matter of autonomous human decision. Let me say that again in Dave's words: we must truly, we must choose to trust in Jesus. And if we don't, Grace, hear this, kids, hear this: your your parents' choice, your husband or wife's choice. Your your grandparents' choice doesn't do it. We must choose, the Bible says over and over, to trust in Jesus. And if we don't, we remain in our guilt and our sin. But the ability to make that choice, Jesus said over and over and over, is a gift of the Spirit. When the Spirit gives that gift, even the hard-to-listen-to things of Jesus become clear and sweet and life. Evidently, Jesus already knew that many of his disciples, there were there were many who had not received this gift. They believed that they had, but they evidently hadn't. And Jesus knew it, for he said in 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. You believe you believe, that's why you're here. You believe you're my followers, but you're not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe, and who it was on top of that who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, listen, Grace, parents, this is your prayer for your kids, your unbelieving neighbors, your unbelieving self, maybe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so we pray, Father, open their eyes. Give give them the gift of sight that they can see your gospel for what it is, to see you for who you are and your holiness. And therefore, our sin for what it is is the the act of cosmic treason that it is. And then we might see Jesus for who he is, high and lifted up as the savior of the world, the one and only. And so here we are again. Jesus offers himself to all of us, to all of you. Holy Week is the great reminder of that. But he offers himself to us on his terms, not yours or mine. In his terms, our wholehearted trust in all that he is and says and does. Is that the kind of faith that you have? Is that the nature, the essence of your faith? It's not about how much of that you have, but is that the essence of your faith? Is that the kind you're praying for? Is that what Holy Week is ultimately about for you, is celebrating that? Or is it primarily nostalgic and sentimental? And how do you know? How do you know if you believe you believe but don't really like these disciples here or if your faith is genuine? One of the best ways to know that the Bible gives us is by how you respond to the commands of Jesus, the Bible's description of the character and nature of Jesus in the trials that come your way. So how are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. How do you know if you have the authentic version of that? And the three main things that the word of God gives us to discern that are how you respond to the commands of Jesus, the Bible's description of the person and nature of Jesus, and the trials that come your way. Let me give you some questions. Ask yourselves these. They're on the back. These actual questions are on the discussion questions on the back. So, But ask yourselves these. Do you view Jesus' commands, at least some of them, as optional? Do you pick and choose which ones you will obey and when you will obey them? Here's here's another. Do, Do you focus on the more palatable claims of Jesus, the ones that go down easier? Do you ignore the ones that speak of his perfect holiness and wrath and imperium? And what happens when those things, what what happens in your life? Here's a good one. Kids, imagine your brother or sister coming into your room and taking something that belongs to you. Wives, imagine your husband not understanding what you meant by what you said and doing the opposite. What happens when things don't go the way you planned? Is your happiness based on your sense of how things should go? Do you ever take risks for the sake of the gospel? Do you do anything in your life that if God weren't real, wouldn't work and couldn't work? Do you take risks for the sake of the gospel? Do you share ever with anyone who doesn't seem eager to be told? Is your life primarily focused on maximizing your comfort and safety? If your answer is increasingly no to those kinds of questions, that's a gift from God. And the Bible tells you you have good reason to believe your faith is genuine. But if you're stuck in yes, please soberly consider verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. An important thing for us to see here is that just as there are unbelieving believers, that's a category we've gotten in John, people who believe they believe in Jesus but don't, there are also discipleless disciples Those who follow Jesus, as long as his terms match theirs. I'm hungry. Jesus, you offer food. I'm in. Let's do this, right? If you're hungry and Jesus offers you food, you'll be a disciple of his, as long as he keeps offering you the kind of food you want. If you're lonely and Jesus offers to be present with you, sweet. That sounds great. My my flesh desires this. Jesus, you offer this. I'm in. I'll follow you.
0: May the fact that the different versions of that, people who believe they believed, who
1: believe they were following Jesus, who, who believed they had faith, but it turned out they didn't. May the fact that different versions of this keep coming up in John's gospel be a warning to all of us. If you are a disciple of Jesus only when it nicely and neatly matches up with your own sensibilities, your own desires, you're probably a discipleless disciple. It might be jarring to hear, but let me tell you, it's good news that you get to hear this and that now you are invited to repent of your unbelief and turn to Jesus in genuine faith. Would you do so today? That's what Holy Week is about. You may have heard the famous sermon where the pastor passionately respond or or reminds his people it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? You may have heard that sermon and, and the point of that that sermon and that catchy phrase within it is though, is that although our savior will die a criminal's death on Friday, we need not fear for he will rise from the dead on Sunday and all who longed for his appearing will be raised with him. So Friday is dark and tragic in a lot of ways, but, and that's true, but Sunday's coming. That's good news for all who truly believe, but here's what you need to get. This passage, John 6:60 6, 60 through 66, is the reverse of that. And so picture me with a little more fire in my logic than I normally have and a little more bass in my voice than I do. If you can picture that, here's what I'd bellow out. It's Sunday, but Friday's coming. That's the heart of this passage. It's Sunday, but Friday's coming. What do I mean by that? For all those who love Jesus, for only what he can give, as did the crowds at the feeding of the 5,000 and during the triumphal entry, for all those who love Jesus, for only what he can give them according to their flesh, the suffering that comes with it will drive you away eventually. If you're here only because of Palm Sunday, remember that Friday's coming. If you only believe Jesus and only believe in Him when He calls you to do things that you'd already do on your own, you will not stand the test of the trials that Jesus endured and promised His followers. When Friday comes, you're gone. If you only love the kinds, the kind of Jesus who brings you the victory you've concocted in your own mind, you've defined what victory looks like. And when you only believe in the Jesus who will bring you that, you will turn away when you find that the victory that He really brings comes through death. So there were many who turned away because they had not truly received the spirit's gift of faith and therefore were unwilling and unable to see the greater glory of what Jesus offered than what they had created in their own minds and desired in their own flesh. But were there any, were there any at all who had received him in genuine faith? Were there any at all who were true disciples who would remain Jesus turned to the 12 and posed that exact question to them. So Jesus said, do you want to go away as well? Again, there's an important distinction to make. Not all disciples are disciples. John, the gospel writer, said in his first letter in chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. True disciples are those who remain faithful, not those who are merely willing to follow Jesus on their own terms. True disciples accept all of Jesus and all of his commands as good and right and binding. And Jesus' forgiveness when we fail. And his strength to repent. Though many left and proved themselves to be disciplest disciples, Jesus' true, true disciples spoken for by Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and are believing and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so here's the prayer. May God grant all of us life and sight to see these great twin truths. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life and Jesus alone is the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah who will save all people from their sins, who will turn to Him in genuine faith. He did, He did, He did grant this to the eleven, eleven of the twelve. But the chapter concludes with the somber reminder that one more would walk away with the crowds. In the most treacherous, treasonous act of all time, eventually Judas would join them. Jesus knew this and still chose him, still allowed him to see the things that he did. And we'll consider that more carefully in chapter 18. But here's my conclusion. I hope you are easily able to see the fact that this passage parallels the Holy Week story. And as such, it is a Palm Sunday passage. I hope you are humbled by the unbelief of so many as Jesus proverbially moved moved them from the high of Palm Sunday to the low of Good Friday, and they walked away in order to reveal the inauthenticity of their faith, not as a way of cutting them off forever, but as a way of inviting them into the real thing. Before we can truly trust in Jesus, some of us need to know we're not. When Jesus gave that gift to this this people. Jesus will receive all who come to him, granting eternal life. But all must come to him on his terms, only his terms, and all of his terms. And the ability to understand and gladly accept that is a gift of God. It's Sunday, Grace, but Friday's coming. And for all who will receive a a mocked, beaten, crucified, and resurrected Messiah, that's good news, because Friday is the only way to the next Sunday and the everlasting life Jesus purchased for us, his resurrection from the dead. With that, let's ask God for the grace to trust and obey Jesus where the crowd failed. Let's eat his flesh and drink his blood. That is, let's acknowledge that he alone gives us true satisfaction for our true and deepest needs. And let's do so this morning by taking part in the meal that he gave us for that exact purpose.